This is a Rooster Teeth production. November 14, 1970. Marshall University's football team has just finished playing an away game against East Carolina. The team boards Southern Airways Flight 932, their only flight of the season, to head home. 75 people are on board for the quick 52-minute flight home on a DC-9 aircraft. On final approach, less than two miles from the airport, the crew has trouble seeing the runway. The first officer suddenly calls out altitude readings with a panic in his voice. 126, 100. Then the plane collides with trees, dips to the right, and almost inverts and slams into the ground nose first. All on board perish. What happened that caused a routine charter flight to crash so close to its destination? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Chris and Gus, and we are back with another episode here for you guys to listen to. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing good. Did you? I don't know. It might get cut, but in the intro, I gasped. <laughs> when you're like all on board, Paris. I go. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. Uh, this incident is is fairly well known. There's been a couple of movies about this incident and the aftermath. Uh, I'm gonna say up front, I have actually I've not seen any of the movies about this. I've only like looked into the incident reports and uh, the investigation side of things. I'm, I'm not looked at any of the dramatizations. And when I knew we were going to do this episode, I actually kind of intentionally avoided watching those just because I didn't want anything that was dramatized to make it into what I talk about today. Like, I didn't want to have any yeah. confusion. You know how yeah. sometimes uh, movies might, you know, change the facts a little bit or tweak with things. I wanted to try to stick to the facts as much as possible. Yeah. Before we dig into it, though, I do want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod on both Twitter and Instagram. We post images and videos and stuff that we can't maybe convey via the audio format. It's a, it's a good way to, to get some supplemental content about uh, the things that we talk about. And... If you haven't, leave us a review. That's always a good idea. Thank you for reminding me, Chris. I yeah. give you five stars for that reminder. Oh, well, thank you. I give you five stars for this <laughs> podcast. So this incident, Southern Airways 932, this is not the first time we've talked about a Southern Airways incident, if you remember. Uh, in our last batch of episodes, we talked about Southern Airways 242, which was uh, that plane that crashed on that rural Georgia highway. Unrelated, just felt like I should mention it in case people okay. were uh, unfamiliar with the Southern Airways name. This Southern Airways Flight 932 took place on November 14th, 1970. And like I said, it was a chartered flight. And it was heading from Stallings Field in Kinston, North Carolina, to Huntington Tri-State Airport in West Virginia. The flight was crewed by Captain Frank Abbott, who was 47 years old, had about 18,557 hours of flight time. And the first officer was Jerry Smith, who was 28 years old, had about 5,872 hours of flight time. And like I mentioned, the plane was a McDonnell Douglas DC-9, had been with the airline a little over a year, still still fairly new plane at the time, had about 3,667 hours on it. And uh, there were two flight attendants on board and 71 passengers for a total of 75 people on board. Then the passengers were, like I said, it was a chartered flight. It was a Marshall University Thundering Herd football team. Uh, it was also some of their staff and a fan organization for the team who were returning home from an away game, uh, and there was a charter coordinator on the flight as well, too. Sounds pretty basic, normal. Yeah, nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, you know, 75 people on a DC-9. It's actually not a very full plane, but again, chartered, so makes sense. The plane originally took off from Atlanta and arrived at Kinston at about 4.42 p.m., where the plane refueled, you know, and they wait for the football team. Uh, the football team boarded the plane, and they began to taxi the runway at 6.28 p.m. They departed Kinston at 6.38 p.m. and climbed to flight level 260, which is 26,000 feet, which was their cruising altitude. Again, 
this flight was only about 52 minutes long. Pretty short flight, so that's why they did not go to like 35,000 feet or a super high altitude. Since it's such a short flight, they're only going to go up to 26,000 feet. Okay. So about 45 minutes later at 7.23 p.m., the crew established contact with Huntington Approach. And they were descending to 5,000 feet when they made contact and the approach controller cleared them for a localizer approach to runway 11. And the localizer is part of the ILS system. And we've talked about the ILS system before. Mm-hmm. It kind of uh, helps automate the landing process for the pilots. And the localizer is the part of the system that provides horizontal guidance to the crew. It kind of lets them know where they are in relation to the airport. Yeah, and just, just I'm going to see if I remember this correctly. The ILS, so it, it just tells you, it's like a beacon that says, here's the airport, and then it says, here's the plane, and it kind of gives you like how far away you are from that spot and kind of your altitude and like even your level? Yeah, I mean, well, ILS, just to take it a step back from there, the ILS stands for Instrument Landing System, right? So it's a way for equipment on the ground to communicate with equipment on the plane and provide an optimal glide slope and approach to the airport. Okay, so you can even help kind of like control the plane. Mm, I wouldn't go that far. It lets the pilots know how to set up the autopilot to come in and how they should be doing this. Uh, But... Like I said, they were they were cleared for a localizer approach, and the localizer is what provides them horizontal guidance. So this particular piece of equipment has nothing to do with their altitude, which is vertical. It's just horizontal. It's just distance and direction to the airport and the runway. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as the controller cleared them to the runway, he advised them that winds were favoring runway 29. The wind was at 350 degrees at 6 knots. The crew acknowledged this information, and the controller gave them further weather conditions, saying that clouds were scattered at 300 feet with an overcast layer at 1,100 feet, and there was a five-mile visibility with some light rain and fog. So not clear weather, but not terrible weather. This mm-hmm. cloudy, some light rain and fog, but below the, the cloud layer, five miles of visibility, which is pretty good. Yeah, plenty of time to see the ground. Yeah. At 7.33 p.m., Captain Abbott told the first officer, Smith, that he would slow the plane down to 130 knots, which is just under 150 miles an hour. Smith responded that he would check the time and the approach should take about two minutes. So this is right at the end, right? This is the final couple of minutes coming in to land. Uh-huh. A minute later, the crew reported they were passing the outer marker beacon and they were cleared to land and the winds were now reported as 340 at 7 knots. The captain and controller had a brief conversation about the runway lights and how bright they should be. As they were coming in, the first officer started calling out altitude saying, a thousand feet above the ground, rate and speed good. The captain responded asking if he could see anything and Smith responded saying, no, not yet. It's beginning to lighten up a little on the ground here at 700 feet. So what's happening is they're looking for the runway lights because, you know, they're coming through, like I said, there was a cloud layer. They're coming through the clouds. Uh-huh. They're trying to see the runway lights, but they can't quite see them yet. And sorry, what time is it right now? It's 7.33 p.m. Okay, so is it, it might be dark then, right? Because you said it's November, so it's pretty dark. Right. It's definitely dark out at this point. So okay. that's why they, they, they can't really yeah. see it. That's why they're looking for the lights to make sure that they know yeah. exactly where they're going to be touching down. Smith then called out 200 feet above and then said 400. Hmm? The captain asked that the approach. So this is in reference to the minimum. So we're going to explain that a little later below. Uh, so you can see already there's some confusion happening here. I, I even heard you go, what? <laughs> <laughs> so Smith said yes, then called out 126 feet. Then 100. Shortly after, the sounds of impact began being recorded on the cockpit voice recorder, and the recording ended a few seconds later. So at 7.39 p.m., Flight 932 collided with the tops of trees on a hillside, about 5,543 feet west of the runway. The plane burst into flames, and everyone on board was killed. 
The tower controller was watching out for the plane to come in and noticed a red glow west of the airport. When he couldn't get a response from the flight over the radio, he initiated emergency procedures. Witnesses in the area reported the aircraft appeared to be lower than usual as it was on its final approach. Hmm. So what happened here? You can already see some things are strange because as they're talking about altitude, the numbers changed. And then all of a sudden, you know, they went from 200 to 400, then 126, then 100, all very quickly, which doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. And then, you know, eyewitnesses, uh, like I said, said that the aircraft was lower than usual. But it's always, in these investigations, eyewitness accounts are always difficult to rely on. Well, of course they're going to say it was lower than normal. They hit the ground. Right, exactly. Plus, lots of times eyewitnesses don't know necessarily what they're looking at. And some, I think yeah. in some of the other incidents we've covered, eyewitnesses have, have said things that ended up not being true. You know, they, they've said in other incidents that they see an explosion or that things are falling apart when that's not necessarily what happened. So eyewitnesses, as a rule, are unreliable, but they're probably right here because, like you said, the plane did crash. So they were definitely lower than they should have been. Yeah. So the NTSB carried out the investigation and they did a lot of speculating in their analysis because they were trying to figure out what happened here. And the Mm -hmm. main problem the NTSB found in this accident was that the flight descended below its minimum decision altitude. And that's referred to as the MDA. If you hear me saying MDA in this episode, we're talking about minimum decision altitude. Minimum decision altitude. Okay. So uh, they descended below the MDA about two miles before the runway and it was not detected by the crew. And what the MDA is, is it's the altitude at which the pilots decide if they can land or if they have to go around. Okay, yeah. We've talked about this before, where it's like at a certain point, you're either coming in too fast or there's not enough runway or, yeah. Exactly. At this point, you have to see the runway at this altitude. If you don't see it, you need to go around and try again. And like I said, they uh, descended below it two miles before the end of the runway. and The crew didn't detect it. And like you heard me reading the transcript, they couldn't see the runway lights and they were asking each other where it was. So obviously... They don't know where the runway is. They should not have descended yeah. past this. So first thing the NTSB looks at is possible error with the autopilot, right? Because like I said, ILS approach you know, should be dealing with the autopilot. Um, a few minutes prior to the crash, there was a moment where the captain was surprised that the autopilot captured the glide slope, even though there was no signal for it to catch. Hmm. The NTSB thought this was because the autopilot was set to ILS rather than a different mode, which should be used for localizer approach. But the NTSB determined there was no evidence to suggest that the autopilot was misused or that it had any direct bearing on the accident. Okay. So, next thing. The NTSB starts to look into the glow the pilots referred to on the CVR. They mentioned they see a glow about 10 seconds before passing below the MDA, and it's possible the pilots thought that that was the runway lights. They were about to break through the cloud layer and thought they'd be able to see the runway when they did. However... It's possible that this approach was affected by a visual illusion produced by a nearby refinery and the difference in elevation between the refinery and the airport. That refinery is located about two miles west of the runway. And the NTSB thinks that if the runway lights were sighted while the refinery lights were still in view, the pilots might have thought that both light sources were from the runway. It's dark out. You know, it's hard to see anything other than the lights. So they could have gotten visually confused, right? I mean, they're looking for lights. They see lights and maybe they think that that's the runway. And it seems further away. So, right. And like lower, I guess. Right. It's it's like an optical illusion that they're experiencing Uh at this point. And then, you know, after thinking about it some more, the NTSB thinks that the pilots might not have even come in visual contact with the runway lights at all. They think that if this was the case, the rate of descent would have increased after passing over the refinery lights. The pilots made no other comments about the lights that's recorded. And the thought is that they would have if they saw the actual runway lights, but they can't know for certain if this was the case. You know, since the pilots passed away, there's no way to know what they were thinking in the moment. Yeah. It's at this point the NTSB realizes the crew might not have even been aware that they descended below the MDA in the first place. You know, like what I was mentioned Uh earlier, when the first officer makes the call out, we're 200 above, 
He's referring to being 200 feet above the MDA. The charter coordinator for this flight was in the cockpit at the time and commented, bet it'll be a missed approach because the crew had not yet made contact with the runway. So he was saying we're too low right now and we haven't seen the runway, so we're going to have to circle? Well, what he's commenting on is that they're getting close to the MDA. Uh, They're 200 feet above it and they don't see the runway. So the charter coordinator says it's probably going to be a missed approach. If you don't see the runway by this point, you're going to have to go around. Yeah. There's no like micro adjustments at that point. Well, I mean, they can still make adjustments. But remember, on top of their vertical descent, they're also traveling horizontally. So they're reaching a point where they have to see the runway. And if they don't see it, they have to circle and look for it again. Yeah, yeah. Because they're not aligned correctly. Yeah. Right. they're, They're getting too close. Yeah. But what happens at this point after the charter coordinator makes his comment, the first officer then says 400. This most probably means that they reached the MDA and we're now 400 feet above the field elevation. Okay. So he was saying you're wait, 100 from the MDA. Now you're 400 at the MDA. Is that what, well, he, what he was saying? And see, you're asking the right question here. There's confusion. What he was saying at first was they were 200 feet above the MDA. And then he's saying you're 400 feet above the field. Okay, yeah, which is just very confusing. Right, and then that's why the captain asks the approach, because the NTSB thinks that the captain meant he was asking if they had reached the furthest point they were allowed to descend. Because even the captain's confused at the information he's getting here. It's not clear what the first officer's trying to tell him. Yeah. At this point in the flight, they weren't coming up on the MDA. They'd actually already flown through it. They were lower than they thought. Oh. As they made the 200 feet above callout, they were already breaking through the MDA. So it's clear to the NTSB that there's an error somewhere in their altitude judgment. Yeah. So just for reference, they made the 400 feet above elevation call out when they were actually at 1,005 feet. Uh, And the height of the trees they hit was at 916 feet. And the airport's elevation is 828 feet. Okay, and that's something too. I I was thinking like 400 feet above the ground, but if... The ground is, if they're doing sea level and it's like 800 feet above sea level and they're, yeah, how does that factor into it? I guess is my question. Like, So I kind of glossed over something a second ago when I said it, and I'm glad you brought this up so I can clarify. I said that when you said 400, they were 400 feet above field. That's the elevation of the runway. So they were 400 okay. feet above the runway altitude. But like you said, when you're dealing with sea level, they were at 1,005 feet above sea level. The height of the trees was at 916 feet, and the airport's elevation was 828 feet. So if the airport's elevation is 828 feet, and they were 400 feet above field, they were at about 1,228 feet, roughly. Okay. that's Yeah, there's a lot of like variables there when you're shouting out numbers. Right. I mean, the, the, there's you have to talk about the frame of reference. Are you talking about sea level? Are you talking about field level? This can all be very confusing. Yeah. Uh, and I apologize. I know there's a lot of numbers there. I'm trying to make it as clear as possible. So not only you, but our listeners can understand what's going on. So just to reiterate this point, now that we've said all those numbers, when they made that 400 feet above elevation call out, they were at 1,005 feet and the height of the trees was 916 feet. So that means they were only 89 feet above the trees at this point, oh. which is not much yeah. at all. That's like... That's nothing. That's nothing at all. I mean, uh, what is that? It's less than thirty yards, which is uh, which is really, really close. You don't you don't want to be that close. And again, <laughs> yeah, it, it's dark. You know, they can't necessarily see that. We're all looking for ways to save money, right? Especially now. So let me ask you this: How would you like to keep an extra nine hundred and sixty-one dollars a year in your pocket? That's how much Gabby customers save per year on average on car and home insurance. That's why when I was shopping for insurance, I used Gabby. Uh, This is the time of year we go shopping for insurance. Well, Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison 
of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, Travelers. All you do is you just link your current insurance account, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you have. Uh, that's what I did. It was super fast, super easy. Just go to Gabby's website. Uh, you link your existing insurance. They compare exactly what you have right now and show you rates for other providers. Uh, showing a bunch of different quotes, and you can see whether or not you have the lowest rate or if you can save money by switching to a different provider. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, Gabby customers save $961 per year on average. Uh, it'd be nice to have that in your pocket every year. And if they can't find you savings, uh, they let you know so you can relax knowing that you already have the best rate out there and they'll never sell your info so there's no annoying spam or robocalls. Uh, there's really no reason not to try it out. You're probably overpaying on car and home insurance. You can see how much Gabby can save you. It's totally free to check. There's no obligation. Go to gabby.com slash blackboxdown. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash blackboxdown. Gabby.com slash blackboxdown. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by Public Rec. I know some of us have gotten used to working from home, and uh, one of the best parts of it is our wardrobe has changed. You don't have to wear uncomfortable clothes for the most part. Uh, we sit around in sweats, but, you know, it can get kind of old feeling sloppy, right? So why is there a middle ground between uncomfortable jeans and sloppy sweats? What about when we transition back into working from the office? How about we shop around and add some more comfort to that old wardrobe? That's why I'm excited about our new partner, Public Rec. They make leisure wear in waist and inseam sizes because comfort starts with a better fit. Uh, they got some great pants. They got their best-selling all-day, everyday pants. They're a more stylish alternative to sweatpants and more comfortable alternative to jeans. See? Middle ground, like I was talking about. Super excited to get some to try them out. I have some on order right now. Do not have them yet, uh, but it seems like a great product. Don't want to have to wear uncomfortable blue jeans. Don't want to have to give up my uh, comfy sweats. Let's fight. Let's meet in the middle. It's all about compromise, right? Uh, great for lounging at home, looking sharp for work, heading to the bar, everywhere in between. The all-day, everyday pack comes in waist and inseam sizing, so they fit short guys, tall guys, everyone in between. Made from a breathable, stretchy, moisture-wicking fabric, you can wear them all day, every day, and they'll look brand new. They also have zipper pockets, so no more having your phone fall out when you sit. I hate that. They come in nine different colors, one for every day of the week, and then some. Now you get your whole wardrobe from Public Rec. They got incredibly comfortable shorts, t-shirts, hemlies, polos, hoodies, jackets, even golf gear. Now, Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now they have an exclusive offer just for Black Box Down listeners. Go to publicrec.com slash blackboxdown. Use promo code blackboxdown. Get 10% off. That's Public Rec. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-R-E-C. Uh, and use our promo code blackboxdown. Again, publicrec.com slash blackboxdown for 10% off. So what's going on, right? I mean, there, there's all these different altitudes where he's giving numbers that are changing quickly. So it's possible that there was a static system error that caused the altimeter to read higher than the actual altitude of the aircraft and provided an incorrect rate of descent on the vertical speed indicator. So we've talked about static systems before, but normally in the past we've talked about them, we've talked about the pitot tubes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so you know that they're, they're connected. It's the pitot-static system. Yeah. In the past we've talked about how it controls the airspeed indicator, but it also mm -hmm. controls the altimeter and the vertical speed indicator. The pitot tubes, they're the ones that air blows through them and based upon the speed of the air and, and the pressure differences. Get, the pressure, yeah. That's what their instrument does, is it measures and figures out from that, right? Exactly. It measures uh, the differences in air pressure to make sure these instruments are indicating correctly. And that's what feeds the plane its uh, altitude, its airspeed, its vertical speed. So anyway, like I said, we've talked about these before and how... 
when there's an error in this system, it can create problems that are difficult to diagnose. I think yeah. we've talked about several incidents that deal with I think so too. pedo and static port issues. And one of them, it was like, I think it was ice in, in the tubes. Mm-hmm. And, and that messed up the reading. It, it, what was the weather like here? It was November. It wasn't that cold, was it? No, but it was, uh, it was rainy. Uh, okay. Uh, but not, not frozen at the time. So just to reiterate, I know we've talked about it before. Um, these are little tubes or little ports attached to the fuselage, and it reads the static pressure outside. But because air pressure changes every day and throughout the day, the altimeter needs to be manually adjusted by the pilots to make sure they're reading the correct altitude. And the reason that the NTSB thinks that there might have been an error here is because the rate of descent was in excess of 1,000 feet per minute, and the approach procedures require a verbal acknowledgement of a sink rate this fast by the first officer, but there wasn't one. So it's possible the indicated descent rate was slower than actual. So basically, they were descending faster than they thought. And if they knew they were descending this fast, there should have been a verbal call-out acknowledging it, but there was no call-out, which makes mm. the investigators think they didn't realize they were descending this quickly. Yeah. There were also two instances recorded on the flight data recorder that showed an overshoot when they were descending to a specific altitude that gradually lined back up with the correct altitude. And both of these were recorded in the last 10 minutes of the flight. The NTSB recognizes that these may have been because of pilot error or an error using the autopilot, but they also think that these could be symptomatic of a lagging of the aircraft instruments due to an error with the static system. And the NTSB found that the altimeters for both pilots were set correctly, and when they were examined, they noticed a mark on the captain's altimeter at 1,250 feet. And they think that this mark was probably made when the plane made initial contact with the trees. But the height of the trees was 916 feet, like I said earlier. So it's mm-hmm. possible that their altimeters were showing they were 300 feet higher than they actually were, even though the altimeters were set correctly. Hmm. Well, that tracks with, I think, the numbers they were yelling. Right. If they thought they were 300 feet higher, that would have been more in line with what they were saying. Yeah. And there's one more thing that would indicate a problem with these instruments, and it's the indicated airspeed, you know, another thing that is given information by the pedostatic system. The captain commented that he was going to slow the plane down to 130 knots, and the NTSB determined that if this was the case, the true airspeed of the plane would have been about 100 knots, which would have been a speed that would start risking a stall. Oh, so then they would have dropped. Right. And you know, we've uh, done some flight simulator videos that we put on roosterteeth.com where we try to recreate some of these incidents. And I think you've seen what happens when you start to stall or when you start to slow down that much. You know, the plane begins to nose down. Yeah. Well, you you have to, it's like you have to go down in order to... To try to increase your speed. Yeah. But if you're already at the ground... You beat me to it, then uh, there's, there's nothing you can do at that point. So the NTSB actually thinks that it's highly unlikely the plane was actually flying this slow because the pilots would have commented on it and corrected it. You know, like I said, when we do those videos, you notice. Yeah. After looking at the data, the NTSB determined that the indicated airspeed and the actual airspeed was about 130 knots. And so they think the airspeed indicator was actually indicating correctly. So there was probably not an issue with that system. Hmm. So the NTSB concludes that the only explanation which would result in an inaccurate altimeter, but an accurate airspeed indicator would be an error in the pitot system, which roughly offset the error in the static system. But they're not aware of any sort of phenomenon that would produce such an error and they did not find any evidence that would uncover something like this in their investigation. Hmm. So basically, they think they know what would have caused this to happen, but they can't find any sort of phenomenon that would lead to this kind of malfunction, which is not the kind of thing you want to hear in an incident, right? No. So they came to some conclusions I'm going to read out here. Okay. The investigation disclosed no malfunction or failure in the aircraft structure, primary flight controls, or power plants. So basically, 
the plane was fine. Like I said earlier, it was a fairly new plane and everything was was working as it should have been as far as the structure, the flight controls, and the engines. Hmm. There was no physical evidence of a defect or contamination in the static system tubing or ports. A static system error is extremely unlikely unless there was an offsetting error in the pitot system. So again, they didn't find any defect, contamination, or error in the system, and it's unlikely there was an error unless there was a second error somewhere else that was offsetting this initial error. Okay, so like two wrongs made a right kind of thing? Or well, not, not, I wouldn't say made a right, but two wrongs covered one of the wrongs. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah. Um, the flight descended through the MDA of 1,240 feet, approximately two miles from the end of the runway, and the descent continued for over 300 feet before the crew initiated a missed approach or go-around. The crew was unaware that the aircraft had descended through the actual MDA. The crew sighted the glow from the refinery lights during the approach, but never obtained visual contact with any part of the runway environment. So they never even saw the airport, even though they saw they, they saw some refinery lights and they thought maybe that was the airport. The lights were on and everything though, right? That's what I was wondering the whole time. Yeah, the lights were all functioning at the airport. Okay. Hmm. But uh, they, they just never saw them because most likely because they were too low to see them. Oh, yeah, that makes sense if they're, yeah. Yeah. So the NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the descent below minimum descent altitude during a non-precision approach under adverse operating conditions without visual contact on the runway environment. So again, it's just kind of reiterating everything we said. They went lower than they should have during a non-precision approach. So this airport didn't have full ILS capabilities. It only had some of the system. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why it's a non-precision approach. And of course, like adverse operating conditions, the weather wasn't perfect. It was a little bad uh, without visual contact in the runway environment. They never saw it. The board has been unable to determine the reason for this descent, although the two most likely explanations are A, improper use of cockpit instrumentation data, or B, an altimetry system error. So this is one of those where, I'm sorry to say, there's no solid firm conclusion. There's just some speculation by the NTSB here. Uh, but they did have some recommendations. You know, they did still try to, to learn and do some things as a result of this incident. And I'm going to read uh, some of their, their recommendations right here. All segments of the aviation industry continue to focus attention on the unique demands for crew coordination and vigilance during non-precision approach. Particular emphasis should be placed on the accelerated development of area navigation systems with vertical guidance capability and heads-up display systems. So basically... They're just saying that we need better technology at airports. Uh, we need to accelerate the development and rollout of uh, more advanced systems to help people uh, land planes. This is 1970, so yeah, I assume they did that. Yes, that, th these things have <laughs> been updated since then. Uh, this this is this is common in almost all airports now. And in any airport you probably fly into, probably has these systems at this point. Mm -hmm. Evaluate the need for installation use of ground proximity warning devices on air carrier aircraft. And uh, this actually became mandated in 1974. And all planes have this now. This is the ground proximity warning system. Uh, I don't know if we've covered that. We may have touched on this in some previous episodes, but it's basically just a system on planes that warns you when you're getting close to the ground. Okay. Uh, actually, wait, yeah, we did cover it in our last episode. We mentioned the ground proximity warning system in the Air New Zealand uh, episode we just did last week. There's actually newer iterations of that system now, which are, which are pretty advanced they're pretty impressive what they can do anyway it, it just basically warns you when you're getting too close to the ground so the aftermath of this on november 15th 1970 a memorial service was held at veterans memorial field house in huntington and the marshall university football program actually almost ended entirely but they they continued they still do have a football program 
Uh, and I think one of the movies is based on this. Uh, I think there's a there's a movie that came out in 2006 called We Are Marshall uh, that uh-huh. focuses on this, the rebuilding of the Marshall University football program. Okay. I think Matthew McConaughey's in it. Uh, I could be wrong. Like I said, a I never rat, a I rat, didn't, a I didn't rat. watch it. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's a local Austinite, just like us. Yeah. Uh, man, I'm glad it focused on the rebuilding and not, it just seems like a bummer of a movie if the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. And like I said, this was their only flight of the season. They normally travel to all other games on bus. Um, just this one, they were going to, they flew yeah. and unfortunately. Well, and, and you were talking, I guess I, the reason I gasped at the beginning was it sounded like they were pretty close to landing and they, that there weren't any like technical problems at that time. Yeah. So I was surprised. I, I mean, I guess it shouldn't be at this point, but surprised that everyone died yeah. and that it seemed very preventable, but I guess we're learning it was a little more confusing than you think. Yeah. Uh, I think... The, the NTSB determined that this crash was unsurvivable. It was so severe. It was really bad. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think there was just some disorientation, right? Like, I think the pilots should have gone around. They didn't realize that they had, they had gotten too low and they were too far from the airport. It was, it's terrible. I mean, this totally preventable um, situation. With, and then the worst part is there's no clear culprit. There's no clear, like, well, this was obviously what caused it. It's all these little thing and that 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 happens a lot in these episodes we talk about it's all these weird little things that add up on their own not terrible but all combined leads to something yeah. awful so uh one other uh memorial thing here on november 12 1972 the memorial fountains uh was dedicated to the victims at the entrance of the memorial student center on the marshall university campus uh every year on the anniversary of the crash the fountain is shut off during a commemorative ceremony and it's not activated again till the following spring so it's still something that they you know observe and and um and recognize at Marshall uh, University every year, even to this day. I'm, I'm sorry to say that that's it. I, I wish I could give you a little more closure on this one. Huh. But this is actually an incident that uh, we decided to do this one, especially because there's been a lot of audience requests for us to talk about this one. I think a lot of people uh, remember this crash and have heard about this crash because of some of the, the dramatizations. And uh, it's, a, it's a tough one. This is a kind of a dumb question, but... Are there not lights on the plane to help show the ground? There are, actually. There are. Um, have you ever? I, I'm trying to think if, as a passenger, you would see these. You probably would if you look out the plane at night. There are lights under the plane that um, they turn on when they come into land. I can't say about the DC 9 particularly. Uh, I guess I should have mentioned at the top of the, the podcast, like I normally do, that I'm not a pilot and neither of us uh-huh. have ever actually flown a plane. So I can't say for certain what the DC-9 uh, lights were like. Uh, I'm going to look up real fast. Yeah, and the DC-9 in particular uh, has a lot of landing lights. Uh, from what I can see, they have uh, lights on the wingtips, some logo lights, they have nose gear landing lights, they have even three extra landing lights on the fuselage on each side, uh, and a big one below the windows. So they do have quite a few landing lights on them. But it could be that in this case the crew was looking at the refinery lights and looking at their instruments. Looking not, like past it. Rather, right. Yeah. And if they're, if, if they're moving that fast and it's so dark, I'm sure they're not as effective as like headlights on your car because your headlights on your car are right next to the ground. And so they have more to bounce off of, you know, and they're... Right. Plus also uh, when you're driving and using lights in your car, you're on a two-dimensional plane, right? Yeah. Like a geometry plane, not a aircraft yeah. plane. Um, when you're flying, <laughs> just I want to make sure I'm clear here. But when you're flying, there's a three-dimensional plane, you know, on top of 
looking horizontally, you're also looking vertically. So it's like not only do you have to look straight ahead, which is what they were probably doing, you have to look down as well as you're coming down. Mm-hmm. Like not only in the distance, but immediately in front of you. And they were probably looking in the distance and not down directly in front of the plane because, again, like you said, they're going so fast that they got to look further ahead. And again, they probably weren't looking down because they didn't expect to be over trees. They thought they were on the appropriate glide slope to come in for a landing. So they didn't, they probably just didn't look down immediately in front of them. And, and if you think about it, and some of the other incidents we've talked about, what was it? The Eastern Airlines flight that crashed into the swamp in the Everglades was a similar mm-hmm. situation where it was dark. They were looking at instruments in the cockpit and didn't realize that they were crashing into the ground, even though yeah. there are lights outside the plane. It is just a weird thing, I think, in your head to kind of wrap around, or at least for me, the idea that the people in the plane sometimes have so little understanding, not understanding, but awareness of where they are in relation to the ground. Because that Mm. comes up over and over and over. And it's just, I mean, it makes sense. It's just, it's hard to wrap your head around that you can't just like see the ground, you know, you see how far away from it you are. But if it's dark or you're, you're preoccupied or you're moving really fast, it just can just they call this spatial disorientation uh, in aviation where, you know, uh, the crew loses track of where they are positionally. And the way I would explain it is this, right? Like you said, it's difficult to wrap your head around, but think about it this way. Uh, Again, I'm going to go back to talking about geometric planes. In your day-to-day life, almost your entire life, you live in a two-dimensional world. When you walk, Mm -hmm. when you get in your car, you're not used to having to interpret three-dimensional data. I jump a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, not, it's typically not something you have to worry about. You're not a bird. Yeah. You don't fly. You don't spend a lot of time dealing with um, with a z-axis as well, in addition to the x and y-axis. So your brain doesn't get programmed to do that. Like when you're driving, a lot of your driving is just like almost like muscle memory. You've just done it yeah. so long. You're used to that. When you're, you know, And now imagine adding a new axis to that. It's just totally different. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's just another bit of data that unless you really train your brain to to deal with, it's not, it doesn't come as quickly to you. And I would also say this is another dumb comparison, but I feel like a lot of my experience with flying is like video games. And mm. um, it's always easy to see where the ground is in those yeah. games. It's very like, it's never hidden. And right. also you're generally not flying from the cockpit perspective. You're flying like more third person, right. you know? And so it's just easier to keep, a sense of where the ground is because it's designed to that way. But in real life, it's not designed that way. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's difficult to see. And uh, if you've ever looked at images out of cockpits, you'll see that it's a, it's a relatively limited view. I mean, you could see around, sure, but it's not it's not like there's windows under you or anything, right? You can't see yeah. uh, but ex- directly below you. So you have to rely a lot on your instruments and you have to rely on the airport's instruments. You have to rely on all this equipment working to, to uh, make sure everything continues to operate in a safe manner. You know, you talked about uh, our, our crash simulation videos where we recreate some of these. It would be interesting to do something, maybe this flight, where it's dark, and we but we stay in the cockpit perspective, and we try and, you know, it's like yeah. trying to understand where the ground is. Cause yeah, we can, we can potentially try that. This airport where this incident happened uh, has undergone some pretty serious uh, construction, uh-huh. and I believe the runways are not the same as they used to be back when this incident happened. So it would be difficult to do this one in particular, but maybe we'll do a video like that. Typically, when we do those videos, I put it in the third-person perspective like you were talking about because it shows more. You know, if it was just from a cockpit perspective, at least in the video game, the instruments take up most of the screen and yeah. it's, it's difficult to actually see um, out the window. 
Uh, all right, but that's it. Uh, I do want to remind everyone to go ahead and give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to see any of these videos we're talking about, the Crash Simulator videos, they're available over at RoosterTeeth.com. We post them there. Just do a search for uh, Black Box Down or uh, Crash Simulator. You should be able to find them. Yeah. We'll also have a link in the description. And and these videos are there um, for first members, which are it's kind of like our Patreon uh class uh, of uh, audience and uh, it's people who you know enjoy the show and enjoy the content we make at Rooster Teeth uh, and so if you do like this show yeah and please consider signing up so because that really helps us um, make this uh, possible yeah <laughs> and ma- it makes it possible to do all the because these take a lot of research and writing and take a lot of time yeah so if you're if you're enjoying it, please consider doing that because uh, we'd appreciate it. And if not, tell a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah d- download the podcast. You know, have them uh, have them give us a try, give it a listen. All right, but uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys again next week. Hey guys, if you're all caught up with Black Box Down, then you should check out my other podcast, Good Morning from Hell. It's a comedy show where I'm dead and forced to interview everyone in the afterlife as my eternal punishment. Every episode has a different guest ranging from Napoleon to the Beatles, Bloody Mary, and even Voldemort. We just released a special Valentine's episode where Gus from Black Box Down returns as Cupid and uh, it gets really, really, really weird. So if you're looking for something fun and dumb, just search for a good morning from hell wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks.